Hello and welcome to this episode of the PE Podcast. My name's Jack Jacob and I am your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Harriet Dunbar Morris, who's the Dean of Learning and Teaching at the University of Portsmouth. We discuss where Harriet grew up in a small village in Scotland, through to studying French at the University of Sussex in Brighton and then on to France at the University of Toulouse. Harriet's quite a shy person naturally, so moving to a new country and having to assimilate whilst learning the language was a challenge, but Harriet speaks about how she often tells herself that things are difficult for a reason and that she has to pull her socks up and get on with it, even if something is challenging. Harriet worked incredibly hard to achieve a doctorate in her field and is still working today towards becoming a professor. As a leader, she is passionate about improving the student experience and therefore student outcomes and prides herself on being a problem solver. Please do enjoy this episode as we get to know the person behind the job title. Harriet, thank you so much for, uh, for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Yes, thank you very much for having me, Jack. So as you know, the podcast series is titled The Person Behind the Job Title. So very much about getting to know you as a person, um, some of your major achievements, some of the things that you've, um, you've experienced in your career and your, your journey to becoming um, the, the Dean of Learning and Teaching at, at, um, at Portsmouth. Um, and, and hopefully uh, a few things and, and bits of inspiration in between that. So let's start, um, let's start really kind of from when you were younger. So, so, so whereabouts did you grow up? Well, I was uh, born and brought up in the northeast of Scotland, really quite far north between Inverness and Aberdeen. And um, that was quite different from where I am now. So uh, quite a small um, village, um, yep. a mile or so away from where I lived in the countryside, where everybody knew me and I knew everybody. And I think the story of my life has always been about going somewhere different and knowing nobody and having a bit of a challenge. Um, and I think probably today we might be talking a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so really small village, tight knit, tight knit community. Um, everyone knows each other and everyone's business and, and everything in between. Um, so, um, cause you, you uh, having a look through your kind of, your profile and your bio and so on you spent quite a lot of time in france so how did you go from the north end of scotland to um to, to then france or and whereabouts in france was it well so what i did was i was studying um french and linguistics at the university of sussex down in uh, brighton and I decided to study um, French and linguistics because I'd been studying French for quite a long time um, over a number of years. You know, I did it at school and it turned out I was quite good at languages um, and picked up French quite well. And I used to go to France um, perhaps once a year to try and gain a little bit more French every time. And, you know, it's not always easy. You don't always pick up quite as much French as, as you think you do. But I used to try and spend time talking French and, yeah. and learning more words each time and, and getting a bit better at um, branching out on my own and, and speaking a few more words and not just listening. And um, my parents said to me when I was thinking about what I would study at university, that um, I ought to go and, and study French since I'd put so much effort into it. And I said to myself, okay, well, that's fine, but they're not going to choose 
exactly what I'm going to study at university. I must choose for myself something too. So I yeah. decided to study linguistics, which was one of the things that you could do as an option. So I did a, a joint honours at the University of Sussex. Um, but also um, at Sussex, you were able to choose which school you belong to. So you um, could do some additional things. So I did um, French and linguistics as a joint honours in the European school, which allowed me also to study European literature and politics and so on. So it was quite an nice. interesting course. Yeah. And um, as I said, you know, it was one of the ways in which I could go as far away as possible um, to somewhere where nobody knew me and I could have a chance to be perhaps somebody a bit different um, and have a bit of a challenge. So I, so I went to Sussex to do French and linguistics in the European school. Yeah. And how um, was, sorry to interrupt, how, how did you find um, Brighton as, as, a, as a city um, from, from, you know, being in a, in a small assume rural village of some description in, in Scotland to them being in a busy, um, you know, uh, quite cosmopolitan type town, really. So how, how did you find that? Well, absolutely. It was quite a change. It really was. Um, and a lot of people came from um, London and um, the big city. So they, they really were... Um, quite different to the sort of people I'd been at school with and uh, the sort of um, lifestyle that I was used to. So in the town nearest to me, there was one nightclub called Joanna's and <laughs> it's still there. Uh, and it's the only place to go uh, in, in Elgin. Um, and in Brighton, there were lots and lots of going out places. But also what was interesting was a lot of people um, at Sussex when I was there um, came from London studied in the week and went home at the weekend so it was actually quite a lonely experience at the weekend because everybody else went home and I stayed in Brighton along with the um, international students who were, yeah. who were there in the halls of residence um, but it was it was nice what I did like was still being beside the seaside which of course I have again now in in Portsmouth but not mm. in all the universities I've worked um, but it was nice to have that opportunity to take part in city life and to be down on the south coast and to be close to London and to be able to go to um, museums and, and other sorts of things. So I got a really well-rounded student experience. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. So, so go back to what you were saying previously then before I, before I interrupted. <laughs> so what was, what was nice was to be able to study uh, quite a wide ranging um, course and also to choose to do some of the things for myself, but also to carry on studying in something that was um, something that I'd done for quite a long time. But the idea being that I could um, focus on areas of, of expertise for myself. Um, but one of the things that I was quite anxious about was part of my course meant that I had to go on a year abroad was a mandatory part of the course okay. and I had to push myself to get ready to spend a year um, living and working abroad. Um, and was this because and of the, the language and the linguistics degree or was it because of the European um, side of it? It was because of the language part. Okay. So yeah. if, you, if you studied a modern language in those days, um, you quite often had to spend a year in, the in, that, in that country. country. Yep. practicing that language. So if, if I'd done two languages, I'd have spent six months in, in each country. 
um, but I did French and then linguistics. So I spent a year in France and that's what took me to the University of Toulouse. So, you know, you were saying um, I'd spent time in, in France. Well, that's where I went. I went to the University of Toulouse. And again, what I decided to do was I'd spent quite a lot of time um, as, uh, as a younger person going to Paris and, and the north of France for, say, a week to practice my French. So I knew Paris quite well. And I thought to myself, well, how can I push myself as much as possible? Where have I never been in France? Well, I've never been to the south of France. And that sounds quite nice, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so I will apply for universities um, in the south of France. And um, it was about applying because what I had to do was prove that I had the language skills and the ability to study abroad um, in the same way as you have to prove that you've got the ability to study in this country. Mm. Um, so I had to take some exams, which were organized by the um, embassy in this country to prove the level of my language skill. And that allowed me, and they gave me a piece of paper that showed how much um, ability I had um, in French and also my ability to study at higher education level. And they gave me a piece of paper that said I could go and study in a French university and I could apply to universities to be taken on there for a year. Yeah. yeah. So I applied to several and Toulouse is the one that accepted me and I turned up uh, to start studying linguistics in France. Nice, nice. So I imagine, so I can imagine, you know, you went from, was that the first time that you had been tested completely in French where the questions were presented in French and obviously I assume, you know, when you're doing your French degree, are some of the questions positioned in English and then you answer in French um, or, or was you used to that? Well, quite often in, in the UK, most of the teaching is done in French to try and okay. make sure that, that you're doing quite a bit of it in French. Whereas actually in France, quite a bit of the teaching, um, if you're studying English in France, quite a bit of it actually happened in those days in French, which I found a bit amusing, really. If you're studying a foreign language, it's quite good if you actually get taught and, and um, assessed in it. Um, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. But back in those days, which is back in the 90s, a long time ago, um, that wasn't the case. But it was a full-on exam. It, it, it was, you know, I had to go to London to take it. And um, I was only, what would I have been? Something like 19 years of age. Yeah. How, how was that for you then as an experience? You know, 19, you know, a, a young lady um, going to not just actually out of your you know, your, your home country, you know, you, you've, you've almost gone two countries deep, haven't you? You know, you've gone from Scotland into England and England into, into France. So again, a completely different culture, a completely different language, a completely de different way of living. Um, was that daunting for you? How did you, how did you cope with that? Well, I'm, I'm quite a shy person. Um, and I do spend quite a lot of time telling myself that, you know, some things are quite difficult and they're difficult for a reason and you have to take yourself in hand and you know pull your socks up and get on with things so i i tend to give myself a good talking to when i've got something that might be a little bit difficult to do and i i found the idea of going on the year abroad quite worrying 
at the age of 18, 19, and I knew it was coming and I was quite anxious about it, but I also knew it was going to be good for me. And it was quite difficult when I knew I was going to get on a plane um, to fly off to Toulouse. And you can't get to Toulouse from the north of Scotland uh, directly. So I had to fly from um, Inverness to London and then change in London in the big airport, as I thought of it. Um, and then <laughs> from he London, froze it. Yes. Yeah. And then from London out to Toulouse. But I knew that it was going to be good for me. So I told myself, right, you know, pick yourself up and, and get on with this. Pull your socks up and get on with yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. will be good for you. And that's the sort of approach that I've taken all my life to things. Um, you know, what, what's, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. Is that, um, is that one of your mottos you go by? It is. Yeah. It is. And I think, I think that's a, a good way of thinking about things. There were three other um, people from the university who went on their year abroad at the same time as me, and they made different choices. So they decided to live together as a group of, of English-speaking people um, at, at Toulouse. And I don't think that they got the same experience as me because I chose to live with a French girl um, and speak French all the time, and I went to French classes and they lived together with other English speaking people. And I think they spoke a lot of English together and I don't think that they gained the same French experience. Sure, yeah, um, that makes sense. At, at 19, that's quite, um, quite an interesting decision you made because the easy option would for you to, to have, have gone with the other three um, that, that had uh, gone to Toulouse from your university with you and, um, and kind of bunked down with them and and kind of stayed in your english bubble in france right um um i think if i was in that position that's probably what i would have done um you know it's, it was you know the easier option as such and you know your brain also always navigates right to the easier option doesn't it um yeah. i suppose that's where you have to you know to tell yourself that no this is this is good for me this is so so was it was that a tough decision to make or or were you really headstrong that no you wanted a true french experience and to well, live with, with a French person. I wanted, I wanted a proper French experience and I wanted to, to improve my French because what was the point otherwise of doing of it? But also yeah. because I'd passed the exams and they said that I had a good level of French and a good level of higher education experience. They said that I could take the classes um, at undergraduate level. So effectively what they allowed me to do was this was my third year of undergraduate experience and they allowed me to do my third year as a university student. So I, it was like I was continuing exactly where I was in the sure. UK system. And I thought to myself, this is an opportunity and I'm going to make the most of it. So I took all the classes and because I was taking all the classes, I decided to take all the exams as well. And then I passed all the exams and that's what gave me the opportunity to stay on in the following years. Oh, so you didn't go back to England. So yeah, in the end, I didn't go back. Well, in the first place, I didn't go back for the next year because I'd passed all the exams of the third year. And I thought, well, why would I go back and do the third year again back at Sussex when I've just passed the third year in Toulouse. So I'll stay and do another year because I've enjoyed it and I yeah. could do my master's year master's. instead. Yeah. 
And then I'd done my master's and there was another year you could do there called a, a postgraduate diploma, which is um, a stage that we don't necessarily do in this country. But if you're thinking about doing um, a PhD here, uh, there, you uh, do a postgraduate diploma first. And I thought, well, I'll do another year and I'll get a job um, to, to keep me going and I'll, I'll do the postgraduate diploma. And I did it again and I passed all the exams and I did the dissertation and I passed the dissertation. And then I decided to do my Stay PhD and do your as well. PhD. And then the next thing you know, it's 10 years on. You were there for 10 years? Yes, that's right. Wow. When you, when you live in a foreign country for that long where you're, you know, you're, your, you know, your, your, your language is then French by default when you're speaking to people and so on. Do you start, do you start thinking in French or do you stay thinking in English? Yeah, I, I, I thought in French, I dreamt in French, those sorts of questions people ask you. I used, I did that. I used to sometimes come off the phone when I'd been speaking to my mother um, who speaks French as well. You know, she has French um, from, from before. And yeah. I used to think to myself, now, I wonder whether I was speaking to her in French or English, because I could have been speaking to her in French. Yeah. Um, because, it was just so second nature by that point. Exactly, because you could just hear things and you knew what was going on. And in, in some cases, I had the French for something, but I wouldn't necessarily have had the English for it. Um, so later on, not, not at this point, because I'm still quite young and I don't have the money for that. But later on, I had um, a secondhand car and quite a lot of things went wrong on that car. And I know the French for those things, but I never knew the English for that because I'd never had a car. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Interesting. You, and you, you turn up to a mechanics in this country and go, uh, da, 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 da. sorry, we have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. You'll, absolutely. You'll have to, you're, yeah. You have to translate it. <laughs> but what I did um, in order to help to stay on um, in France was I worked full-time and studied full-time uh, and I was working as an English teacher so I was helping French people learn English as a foreign language in order to help pay my way uh, whilst I studied so I was helping some people who worked at Airbus um, where they decided in the factory that you had to speak English as their language across the factory um, because they worked so much with English-speaking um, clients right, okay. across the world. So some of these men were, you know, in their 50s or 60s, and they hadn't spoken English since they were 14, 15, and had left school, and they'd gone into the, to the Airbus factory creating aeroplanes. And they suddenly had to start learning English and business English, you know, and aeroplane English. And they came to this language school where I was working and they had to start learning English with me. And I had to keep quiet about the fact that I was actually at that point bilingual in French, because as soon as they knew you could speak French, they would just use you like a sort of talking dictionary. You know, how do you say this in English? How do you say this in English? How do you say this in English? But the yeah. best way to learn a language is to learn how it works for yourself because you'll remember it but if you've looked it up in the dictionary you'll remember it for yourself whereas if somebody just tells you what the word is you just always know you can ask them and you never remember it for yourself sure yeah it's fascinating because i think you know so many people's on their to-do list right learn another language and so many um you know new year's resolutions to learn another language it's so fascinating um um 
but I suppose it's just it's just like anything in life. It just takes dedication and hard work and I'm, resilience. And there's, nothing, and, and there's nothing like living it, really. Going and spending some time, going and buying your bread and your coffee and sitting in a cafe and watching the world go by and chatting to people. There's nothing like actually living it, which is why the year abroad was such a good idea. It's yeah, just of course. a little bit sort of bit worrying before you actually go and do it and if you jump in the deep end and get on with it you swim yeah of course of course of course see see i i learned german at school and that's that's like the only time i really done languages so it's german and the only thing i really remember is how to say on monday i went to the cinema which isn't like on montag i can't even i don't know what even i went but i know it's kino is is cinema in in german um I'm sure I could make up something that I would convince myself was right on Montag. She went to the keynotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, no, I definitely, um, definitely on my, one of my to-do lists and, and, and certainly Jordan, my missus, um, um, we, you know, we spoke that, you know, about things that we wanted to do. And one of her things was, was learn a, learn a foreign language. Um, so yeah, so um, there we go. We might be giving you a call for your assistance. There we go. <laughs> but then, but, then but now I know what you do. You won't help. speak to me. In, you won't speak to me in English the whole time. You just speak to me in French. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good way of learning language. And of course, as a as a linguistics person, which was my subject area, it's not about how you, you know, it's not about being a speaker of lots of languages but it is about how people learn language so one of the ways in which um my subject area was uh, was interesting was how people learn their first language or how people learn their language after they've had an accident and have lost the ability to, to and is that what ling linguistics is yeah absolutely so it's about helping people with their language learning Okay. Um, if they've either had to learn a first or a second language, or if they lose their language after an accident and have to relearn their language. So people who have um, aphasia, which is where they've had some sort of knock to the head or a car accident or something, and it's affected their language learning. So I worked in a laboratory, which was uh, related to brain accidents and, and things like okay. that. So it's always interesting to me how people go about learning language um, and sure. thinking about how I went about learning language. You know, that's where it's all stemmed from, really. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So, so, so you eventually, because obviously you're, you're Dr. Harriet um, Dunbar-Morris. So, so you've done your PhD um, in France um, and that was in linguistics and language or just linguistics? And, and... In linguistics, yeah. Okay. So I, I was studying French and linguistics at Sussex when yeah. I was um, here. And I did two years and then I went to France. And when I went to France, obviously, then I was only studying linguistics because I was in France. But I was studying it in the language of French. Yeah. And I carried on in linguistics for a number of years um, and did my PhD. So we're, you know five or six years later on, I've got a bit better at the French and um, I'm, you know, 26, 27 years of age and it comes time to defend my thesis in French. And what's quite interesting about that um, was that in this country, that's quite a sort of private affair. You um, write your PhD 
um, your thesis and you um, defend it in front of two or three people in the UK. Okay. In, in France, it's a public affair. So anybody can walk in off the street and listen to you defend your thesis. And um, it's also uh, uh, quite a sort of quite a sort of serious affair. You have uh, what they call a jury of- I say, It sounds like a bit of a, um, you know, a court scenario. Yeah, exactly. There's sort of four or five people there, including your supervisor and then some external supervisors. And they sit at a table and they watch you um, present your thesis and, and you present for quite some period of time, um, which is great because it's the first time you get to talk about this research you've been doing on your own for ages and ages. And then they ask you questions about it. And then there's a room full of people watching you doing all this. And then they send you out of the room and then they decide um, what mark they're going to give you. And in this country, you either get your thesis or you don't. And you get asked if you're going to be given any corrections to make. Um, but that's, that's all that happens in this country. Whereas in France, they give you a grading. So a bit like for a degree, you get a first, a two, one, a two, two, or a third. Yeah. Well, in France, you get marks like that. So you okay. get told, you know, how well you've done. And they call you back in and tell you what mark you're going to get uh, on the day. So I spent um, an hour defending my thesis in public with my family on the front row, looking to see how this was going and trying to understand. All in French, I assume. Yeah, all in French and everything written in French. Um, and they were sort of sitting in the front row trying to understand, you know, how was the grilling going? Were the questions any good? You know, was I doing okay? Were they being mean to me? And um, then we were sent out and then they're all standing around outside asking me how it went and did I think I would get a good mark and so on. And it seemed to me that we were outside for ages and ages. And then we were called back in um, and I was given my mark um, and I didn't get any corrections at all, which no is, way. you know, very good. So no corrections, no typos, no bad grammar, no spelling mistakes. Um, and I got the top mark. Um, for the thesis and then my supervisor told me afterwards I said gosh you were in there a long time was it very difficult to decide and he said oh no not at all we decided straight away but we hadn't seen each other for ages so we thought we'd have a chat uh, so you're out in the in the holding lobby area or whatever worrying about <laughs> and they're having a catch-up yeah yeah but apparently Did you thank him for that I did. Apparently that happens in this country too, but you know, I didn't know that. And my family were asking me because they thought I would know all, all the details. Um, so I always think about that now when I'm doing supervision for doctoral students. So I try and make sure that they know exactly what to expect and, and how things are going to work yep. so that they don't get any, you know, even more nervous moments made even more nervous by things yeah. that we do because as academics, you know, we're very busy and we don't often get to see each other. And something like that is a great opportunity to see one of your peers and have a chat about a paper you're trying to write. Of course, of course, of course. So, 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 so 10 years in France. Um, so talk to me about, um, you know, so, so you'd worked in, in the, in the lab, um, um, specializing in people that have had um, kind of accidents and, and are looking to kind of relearn languages and so on and so forth. 
what happened when you got back to England then? Um, a job came up at the University of Oxford. And I thought, well, you know, I'll give it a go. It's quite competitive. You know, not everybody will get a job at Oxford who applies at Oxford. But, you know, let's see. And I, and it was something slightly different. So it may or may not work because it wasn't in linguistics anymore. It was in higher education as a, as a topic. And surprise, surprise, I got a job at the University of Oxford. So I moved from Toulouse to the University of Oxford and started working in um, an institute there, looking at research into higher education and how students make the transition um, and transition into higher education and their experience of studying in higher education. And that's when I made that change from uh, linguistics as a subject to higher education as a subject. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And so, so that job, well, one of the most, if not the most prestigious university in the world, let alone you know in the United Kingdom. Um, what what was that like as an experience for you then, from going from, you know, cult culture Brighton to then you know south of France to then, you know. Um, uh, a, a, a very um, yeah prestigious and and um, an organisation like that. Well, it was quite different on a lot of levels. So you know, I've gone from small village in Scotland to the yeah. big city in Brighton to lovely sunny weather and pavement living in Toulouse, but it's big city too. Yeah. Um, to Oxford which is beautiful but it rains quite a lot and then I've gone from in France the higher education the university sort of teaching and learning is lots of big classes and sink or swim approach to teaching and learning you just have um, an, an experience about you've got to take yourself to class and you'll have big lecture theatres filled with um, students who come and go to the lecture or go to the large seminar groups and they were quite large 40 or 50 people in the seminar group and it's all up to them about what they do and there's no personal tutors or there wasn't in those days there could yeah. well be now no personal tutors and no sort of student experience all the sorts of things that I do now none of that existed when I was going through the experience in Toulouse um, back back then um, yep. at the end of the 90s um, and, and 2000s and I went from that to small group tutorial teaching in Oxford in uh, in an experience where you get your tutor and you get one-to-one, one-to-two, even the seminar groups are, you know, 10, 12 sort right. of people. And the lectures are not mandatory in Oxford. Um, so it was a very, very different experience on so many different levels. Yeah, of course. But it was so interesting to be involved in teaching and learning at Oxford and to be involved in some projects about how do we make this even better for students because it's already pretty good. But yeah. some of the things that I was doing was talking to academics about how you might do more for the student experience 
for students and you know how you've do been you doing it this way for 600 years i was but, gonna ask but actually you can do it differently or you might think about doing it differently so this is where we take research projects and we do um what I'm what I'm interested in is mixed method research so quantitative survey data and qualitative focus groups and um, interview data and bring those two things together and talk to academics about this is what the data is showing us about how your students experience their teaching and learning what do you think we should do to make changes in relation to that and some of that now feeds into things that we do across the whole sector which is quite interesting. So some of it has led to the sorts of surveys that we do now in the sector, like um, the NSS. What, what's that for those that don't know? Oh, yes. Sorry. The National Student in, Survey. Including me. <laughs> sorry. Uh, the National Student Survey. So those sort of satisfaction surveys that okay. students fill in um, at the end of their um, course. Um, at university that talks about their overall satisfaction and their perception of how things have worked on the course. So they talk about, for example, how assessment was or how their learning and teaching was. And then universities look at the results of that um, to see where they might make changes to how they do things on a Makes year by year sense. basis. Yeah. And that gets reported nationally um, by um, the Office for Students. And it gets turned into league tables um, but that's not what it was designed for. Sure. It was originally designed for us to use for to ourselves. Use to, to, to better your service as such. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Makes sense. And now it's used to say, right, well, we have the most happy, most engaged. And, you know, if you want to be this, then you go to that university or, yeah, and so on yeah. and so forth. So, yeah. so there we go. That's, and, and I suppose that's probably where, because ultimately it's very, very competitive, isn't it, between, between universities now to, to, to gain customers so to speak um and uh, and win students and actually one thing that you said that i found quite quite funny you know i assume you know a big part of your role is around um retainment and making sure people fulfill um you know the the, the three years of the degree they've signed up to or whatever it might be um and uh, and that that <laughs> you've done two years in your uh, 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 down in uh, down in brighton at sussex university and then uh uh, and then done the final year at um, uh, in Toulouse. Um, so uh, so yeah, it would have uh, it would have been a uh, you would have been a stat that you didn't want to see. That's right. Yeah, we spend quite a lot of time making sure that we help our students to progress, and we keep them on course, and we help them to uh, succeed. Um, and I suppose for Sussex, I'm I'm not exactly their best advert in terms of <laughs> finishing with them, but I am a statistic that they can be proud of because I went on to succeed by getting higher qualifications and I think they can probably report that in a good way too because we are interested in the sector about where people um, go on to other qualifications and, and other successful outcomes yeah um, but yes you we do spend a lot of time worrying about what our students do and and how they succeed what their outcomes are of course um, so so from then Oxford um, talk to me about you know, because you're now in, in, in a leadership position, right? Um, so talk to me about that journey from, from you know, um, and I, you know, it seems like you was, it was still a fairly, you know, had some clout that role and was, was still, you know, a, a role senior. But talk to me about your, your journey into leadership. 
So I'm not in the leadership position yet. This is yep. the beginning of my journey. So yep. at Oxford, I started off as a researcher. Okay. And I then, that's where I start my leadership. So I start as a researcher at Oxford and I gradually start to build expertise in higher education and start basically zigzagging around the country into different universities and different organizations as I go up the leadership ladder, I suppose. Yep. And from Oxford, I had several positions in Oxford, um, quite short-term positions, because as a researcher, I'm on short-term contracts. Yeah, so I'm already awesome. looking for the next position nearly all the time, because you're looking for um, where you're going to get the next job and the next set of salary yep. from. So I had several positions there, and each of them gave me a little bit more authority and a little bit more experience which allowed me to apply for the next job and I think that's quite good because you get better at writing a letter and a CV and more experience on the CV which allows you to better describe what you do and what you're good at and sometimes that's the difficult thing because we're not always very good at blowing our own trumpets of course. and explaining what we do and what we're responsible for and what we do in concert with other people so from oxford where did i go i went to uh, ucas so the organization that yep. helps students apply to university and i started working in policy and research there um, and started helping with how we make changes to how students apply to university so one of the things that i was interested in was um, students with non-traditional qualifications applying to university. So that's the sort of beginning of widening participation. And some of the changes that happened as a result of the work that we were doing there was looking at how students with BTEC qualifications, for example, were applying to universities. Yep. And their websites didn't necessarily say what they needed other than A-levels. Okay. So one of the changes that was made nationally was that um, universities started saying what sort of BTEC you needed as well as sure. A-level qualifications. Sure, and, what, and how that, that um, kind of dovetailed into, because into, UCAS points, isn't it, is what, is, is yeah, what your right. grades you um, um, equate to. So was there a conversion then from what, what kind of a, a distinction BTEC meant compared to a, uh, an A-star A-level? That's right. So yeah. UCAS d does quite a lot in terms of what a UCAS tariff point was for each of the different sorts of qualifications. And then universities used to have on their websites what the different points were, but then it would just say, this is what you need if you've got A-levels. And it would be AAA sure. or BBB. Yeah. And then it would just say, for example, have tariff points. But it wouldn't say for any of the other students. So students who weren't A-level students who might be the least likely to pick up the phone and talk to a university were the ones who would have to pick up the phone and talk to a university to find out what that meant in terms of their BTEC or other qualification. So for example, um, for um, a Scottish student like I would have been, not that I did do hires, but if they'd taken hires, they would have had to find out what it meant for hires. Sure. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I actually took A-levels because I knew I wanted to go to England for university. So I thought yep. it would be easier if I took A-levels. Um, but my 
you know, others, other Scottish colleagues would have taken hires, BTECs and all sorts of other qualifications. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I went then from UCAS, then I thought it would be nice to go back into um, slightly closer to university. So I went to a mission group. So that's a group that brings together a number of universities of a similar sort of grouping. So I went into a mission group called the 1994 group. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a grouping of small and medium sized research intensive universities. Okay. And they were based in central London um, on Trafalgar Square. Yeah. And I was in and out on the train two and a half hours each way. No I've way. Done, I've done How long did you do that commutes. for? I did it for a year. Wow. Yeah. Five hours commuting a day. Yeah. I used to work from home. I used to try and get a day or sometimes two days at home. Um, but yeah, it was quite a long time. I, I used to work on the train. I was like, a, I mean, it would be perfect now. I, I was very well set up for what we're doing now in COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but I was like a little, a little um, walking sort of office. I had everything in my backpack and I'd get down and sit down on the train and get everything out and work for two hours and then pack it all up and go into the office and do a day's work. And then, you know, did the same on the way back or read a book or something. Yeah. But you know, it was universities like Bath and Exeter and, you know, Lancaster, that sort of type of university. Um, Really, really committed to the student experience. That's what brought them all together. Um, And I did um, a year there working with them on things about technology enhanced learning to enhance the student experience. That was one of the things that we were focused on. And that was really interesting. It was a really good year. But one of the things that happened was I felt that I had, you know, some time at UCAS and then some time in the mission group but I wasn't in a university. So I wasn't directly affecting the students. So I said to myself, you know, I need to get a job where I'm actually making a difference to students. And that's the thing that I've been doing all the time since I, you know, got back to the UK is making a difference to students and their experience of higher education. So I got myself a job at the university of Bath. Yeah. Working with one one within the group. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah working with um he was the pro vice chancellor learning and teaching at the time okay um so i'd met him through the group and he wanted to bring in somebody to help him really advance the focus on learning and teaching and student experience yeah just a quick one before you go on to the role where where does that passion come from do you think you know this whole about enhancing the student experience and um, you know, ultimately around your role that you do now, but you, you know, you've mentioned it throughout, you know, your role at Oxford, your role, um, at UCAS, you know, all of it is, is very much, how can we better or give students more choices or, or whatever. where does that, where does that passion come from? Well, I think, I think for me, it's a bit of a vocation. I think you have to really believe in what you do. Um, and I think, the sort of person that I am, I'm somebody who's a bit of a problem solver. You know, I always like to try and make things better. I like to solve problems. I like to be able to do something that makes a difference. And perhaps the way in which I experience those two different sorts of 
higher education, you know, seeing how it was done in the UK, seeing how it was done in France, mm. gave me that feeling that you can do things better and you can make it easier for students. And that probably was the beginning of understanding that student experience is really quite important, really quite central to what it is that we're trying to do. And if you make the student experience good, you actually help students to better succeed. Mm. And there's something about how as, as leaders, if you've got something that's very core and central to what you do and you can help other people understand what that is, you can really bring people with you. Um, Bill George in America has written a book about that. It's called Authentic Leadership. And I think that's the sort of leader I am. I'm, I'm one of these people with a, with a real sort of value, values-based leadership approach. And if people agree with my values and my direction of travel, then they can get on board with me and go in my direction of travel. And for me, that's about making a difference to the student experience and and helping students to succeed for themselves. Because I think that's at the core of it. We're not doing it for them. We're helping them to do it for themselves. Sure. Sure. Makes perfect sense. Uh, And I suppose it's, you know, it's, it's not just, it's, it, it controls everything, doesn't it? It controls, it controls the finances. It controls, um, you know, how organizations are, are, are ranked. Um, you, you touched on that before. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there probably is research, but I, I'm sure the happier the student is, the better they do grade wise as well. So then it also helps with, um, those kind of achievement rankings as well. So um, when do you think that kind of vice chancellors or whoever it may be started to take the student experience more seriously? Well, I think certainly, I mean, the 94 group, that was very much about the student experience and that would have been in the nineties when they decided that that focus on the student experience was the way to go and to think about things. And, and you said students who are happy do well. It's not exactly students who are happy who do well, but students who engage, students with good engagement statistics and measures that we can look at yeah. get better outcomes. And there is research on that. Yeah. And if we focus on the student experience, we can get them to engage better. Sure. So if, if they've got a poor experience, they're unlikely to engage. But if we make sure that the things that we change in the student experience encourage them to engage better, then we help them to help themselves to get better outcomes. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So... So that's what I was doing in Bath yeah. with, he was then the pro vice chancellor, um, brought in to improve the student experience and actually did quite a lot in terms of the student experience and got um, awards for the university in terms of the student experience, which was, which was great to do. Things that 
um, other universities have done since, but they were one of the first to do. So they brought in um, student experience officers in each of the faculties to focus on the student experience and to think about students in, in the whole package, um, students who might not be the first in, who were the first in their families to go to university, who might not necessarily have gone to university before, um, who might not necessarily have that background, um, but you don't want to single them out as being different from the others, but you want to be able to provide some extra support around the edges. So um, giving roles in each faculty to look out and provide some support to those students so that they're getting something without having to be thought of as different. Yep. So you're not labeling anybody. Yep, makes sense. So that was quite good. Uh, yeah. A couple of years there, and, and you'll hear this a lot now, a couple of years there and then on to Bradford. The yeah, I was going to say, you like to travel, don't you? It's... Yeah. Yeah. I think I might be keeping some of the removal companies in, um, in fun. <laughs> across England, yeah. Yeah, jump in a truck and move our stuff across the country. So, so from Bath to Bradford, where I, where, where I joined the... Um, senior management team there and work with the vice chancellor um, there. So he had been one of my vice chancellors at the 94 group, okay. but he'd changed then from being the vice chancellor at York to the vice chancellor at Bradford. Yep. And he, a bit like me, quite likes a challenge. So he'd taken on the challenge of Bradford, um, which is a pre 92 uh, university. And we worked on quite a few different projects, but one of the ones that I really enjoyed working on, which was different, was setting up um, an international sort of grouping, World Technology University Network. So I worked with him on contacting lots and lots of international vice chancellors to set up a network of technology universities and it's technology in the wider sense. It's not just, you know, computers and things. Sure. Sure. Um, and that was started off with a Congress, which we held at Bradford and brought all these um, international universities to Bradford to show what this network could achieve. Yeah. Um, and it's gone on um, even since I left wow. um, into quite a nice network of, of universities doing exchanges, staff and student exchanges and has a Congress every year. Um, they met uh, in, in um, India two years ago. Um, so it's been a really great success. And it awesome. was so interesting to talk to all these other international universities like Bradford, but not like Bradford, about the sorts of things that they do. Yeah, no, it sounds, um, it sounds like something, something really quite fun to be a part of as well, you know, setting something up from scratch. Um, yeah. Something that, you know, I, I love doing that kind of stuff, you know, from, from real kind of concept to, to getting it going and, um, and making something that's just an idea into something that's actually real um, and, and provides value. So that must have been a major achievement for you. Yeah, that was a pretty, pretty big achievement. Um, what do you think is the proudest achievement you've got then? Well, there are a few. Um, and some of them are more personal than others. But perhaps the markers of some of my achievements are the things that I sort of 
feel the most proud of. Yeah. So two of those markers are that the Advance HE, which was the Higher Education Academy, um, mark your achievement in leadership with something called Principal Fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Okay. Um, and I achieved that, and it was based on things like um, the World Technology University Network and some of the other things that we've talked about today. And then I also, um, a little while ago, achieved my readership, um, which is not professor yet. I'm still working towards that, but it's halfway there. Um, and that's my academic side of my leadership. And that, um, that sort of recognizes my research background in higher education, teaching and learning. So papers and conferences and book chapters and um, some of the citizenship things that I do. So I chair a network, um, a group called the Spinnaker Group for people who lead in teaching and learning and student experience. And that was recognized through that. Interesting. So I think those two things, I'm proud of those because they recognize the other things that I'm proud of. Course. of course. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And so, so I'll talk to you on a, a personal level now, you know, you, you, your, your current role, um, you know, has a lot of responsibility, a lot of pressure, um, probably very time consuming too, um, the hours you have to put in and so on. So, so what do you do to unwind and relax? What, 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 what do you do on a personal level? Well, um, well, you've met my husband yeah. um, because he, he, he came with me to um, yeah, the Higher Education Kings. Partnership Network yeah. uh, when I spoke at that. And I do quite a bit of speaking and that, I don't do that to unwind, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> he's very good. Um, he's very supportive. In fact, I'm very lucky to have him because all this crisscrossing the country for these different jobs, I couldn't do that if I didn't have him. But he's also very good at making sure that I do unwind when I have to unwind. So we do quite a lot of walking. Nice. Um, not serious walking. We used to do a bit of serious walking. We haven't been able to do that, particularly in the lockdown. Um, but what we do like to do is um, we've got a bit of a competition because I have um, one type of phone and he has another type of phone. And they both mark how many steps we do and how many kilometers we do. But rather unfortunately, his says that he does more kilometers and fewer steps and mine says i do more steps but fewer kilometers so there we so go you we, just need to put them together and then you'll yeah, uh exactly. if you take your steps and his kilometers that's right and then use that as 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 your step count and your kilometer count then everyone's a winner yeah and that's what we do so we normally take my steps and his kilometers yeah so we try and make sure particularly on the weekends that we do a lot of longer walks with our yep. little dog um, because at the, during the week it's, it's a bit too difficult to do. Uh, so, but on Friday, last Friday, we had a day off um, and we did um, 30,000 steps and that was, I think it was 20 kilometers. Wow. Wow. That was, that was quite good. And, and what do you do? Are you, are you a silent walker or are you, do you put a podcast in your, you know, in your, in your headphones or do you chat amongst yourselves? We chat amongst ourselves when we do it together. Um, yeah. But if we were on our own, we'd probably listen to something. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. 
And then we also, because we lived in France, so I picked this up when I was living in France, um, we do French rock and roll, which is called Ciroc. Okay. So we've done that quite seriously in a number of places where we've lived. And it was particularly good in Oxford because they had it in a number of different um, towns in Oxford and around Oxford. So you could actually dance every night if you wanted to. And there were some times when I did. Um, but I haven't been able to do it since I arrived in Portsmouth because they don't run Ciroc here. So it's a bit disappointing. Um, but I can recommend it to anybody who's looking for good fun and exercise all in. Well, I'm going to have to look at this. How do you spell that? Ciroc. C-E-R-O-C. C Pick up a pen that works. C-E-R-O-C, is it? Yeah, Ciroc. Yeah. It's French Ciroc. rock and roll. I'll have to check that out. It sounds like fun. It is. It's a bit like jive, you know, and some people do jive and, and other sort of derivatives, but Ciroc was the one that I learned when I lived in France. So I, I really enjoy it. And anybody can do it, even people with two left feet. There we go. There we go. Well, um, that might suit me then. <laughs> well, it, it's been um, an absolute pleasure talking to you and um, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you ever so much for being on the show. Um, but it's been great to get to know the person behind the job title. You're welcome, Jack. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the PE podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you share this episode via your social media channels, as it really does help us to gain traction in promoting this podcast series. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the channel that you're listening via, as you'll then get notifications as soon as we release our next podcast episode. Thank you.